Live from beyond the Beltway, this is Bruce Dumont with our weekly analysis of national politics, featuring occasional injections of rumor in your window, all offered up by our panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public servants, professors, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight, featuring commentary by libertarian Bruno Barron, author of The American War in Afghanistan, Carter Malfalsian, and Paul Vallis, former superintendent of the Chicago Public School System, our program tonight coming to you from our new home base at the WIND Studios, AM 560 in beautiful Elk Grove Village, Illinois. Our phone lines open at 1-800-723-8289. That's 1-800-723-8289. And again, you're listening to us on America's Great Radio Stations or listening to us on YouTube Live or Facebook Live. Uh, do hop on and uh, share your thoughts with us. And again, I just want to mention that in the second hour, as we have done for the last couple of weeks, uh, we've got a great guest who has great expertise in what is happening and what has happened uh, in Afghanistan. And obviously that's a, a huge story today. There's already reports that the Taliban has already taken over the presidential palace. And again, uh, as U.S. troops, 5,000 U.S. troops are, are landing or about to have landed or in the process of landing uh, in, uh, in, in Kabul to try to preserve the airport and preserve some uh, peace uh, as the uh, embassy employees of the United States are moving uh, towards the airport. The embassy is eventually going to be closed, but they're trying to get all of the business out and being conducted at the airport. And this is happening as literally thousands of Afghans who helped the United States as interpreters over the last 20 years. They live in the hinterlands of that country. They are trying to make their way to Cabal so they can get, an, get a plane out, either to the United States or most likely to Qatar or to other countries. The United States is aggressively looking for other countries that will take these people to save their lives. There's about 80,000 of them. 12,000 have already made out of it, made it out. We'll talk about that at length in the second hour. But again, we're going to talk about some other issues because COVID continues to be a huge problem in this country. Schools are, are opening throughout the United States. Uh, there are debates going on as to whether or not uh, there should be mandatory requirement for vaccinations and masks and everything else. And so uh, we're very pleased to have Paul Vallis with us. Paul Vallis is the former superintendent of the Chicago Public School System. He's also worked in, in uh, New Orleans and other places of Rutledgeport, Connecticut, other places around the United States. Also was an advisor uh, to Haiti during their last uh, earthquake. So uh, again, a noted educator. And Paul, l l let's, let's just begin with you with, with the basic question. Uh, it is individual school districts that make decisions as to what's going to happen in their area. The federal government obviously has the CDC. Right. So a federal agency comes out with a dictate as to what's supposed to happen. Uh, how closely should these various, and literally there are thousands of school districts all over the United States, how closely should they follow the advice of the alleged scientific experts <laughs> at the federal level? Well, look, you know, the CDC, um, generally the states will f gravitate toward following CDC uh, advice, although the big issue has been whether or not you take the CDC uh, advice, like on issues of masking and whether or not you mandate it or you leave mm. it up to the local school districts right. and the parents to make the determinations. Because the big issue right now is do you allow local control? And as you know, for example, in, in Florida, DeSantos has basically said, uh, if any local school district mandates masking, I'm going to cut off their funding. And then on the flip side, in Illinois, Pritzker has said, if any school district 
uh, does not mandate mandate and, and does not mandate uh, masking. I'm going to cut off their funding. So it's from one extreme to another. But I'm generally inclined to believe that uh, because schools are so different because of the, where they're located, the spacing, the, the environment in which children are being taught, I usually believe, you know, I've always felt that those decisions are best left to the local school boards and the local health care agencies to make those final determinations. Bruno Barrett also joins us. He's a noted uh, libertarian. He's been on this program for many, many years. Uh, Bruno, what's your answer to the question? I, I got to say I agree with Paul. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit, I mean, I like DeSantis, and I think, you know, he's probably a, a, a pretty good example of someone who's handled his state as well as possible under the whole COVID thing. Uh, but this idea in Texas and, and uh, uh, um, Florida that you're just dictating that you can't that a local district can't ask somebody to wear masks. Maybe masks are the right thing to do in a crowded Miami school, but the wrong thing to do in an uncrowded Fort Walton Beach school. So why do we have the Pritzkers and the DeSantis's literally like aping, aping the ideology of the most extreme members of their party for no other reason than to try and not get sideways of them when they should just let the local people but, decide. But if in, in this case, it's a, it's a public health issue. In a public health situation, the Supreme Court has already ruled that, 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 that public health is a very important thing. Right. And if you have experts, or I'm going to call alleged experts, because right. that's where a lot of people don't trust the experts these days. Exactly. And others that want to tr you know trust the scientists or don't trust the scientists. But they, they are a federal authority that, that says one thing. And is it a good idea or is it a confusing idea to the general public if you have the possibility of 50 other local experts in various states uh, doubting the word of what's coming out of Washington? Well, I mean, isn't that, is, doesn't that lead to sort of the chaotic situation right now? You, you, you watch the news and you've got to try to decipher what the hell you're supposed to do because your state director may be telling you one thing or your governor. And then you've got uh, you know, either the president and or uh, Dr. Fauci uh, suggesting something else. Um, see, I think that horse has already left the barn. I mean, look, there, there's a bunch of people in the center who might believe the authorities or might think the authorities can't possibly be lying about things. There's extremists on the right who think that everything that the left says is a lie and they're partially right based on some of the things that the left has said or mm -hmm. the leaders have said. And there's people on the far left who look at some of the things that have been said on by some very, very conservative governors around. The, and, and, and so nobody really believes anybody anymore. And the fact of the matter is red staters think masks are nonsense and there is some science to back that up. And blue staters think masks are going to end the, end the crisis. And there is very little science to back that up. But there is some science to say that masks in general are better than not. So let let the people do what they want. Paul, he just said nobody believes anything that anybody's saying anymore. Uh, well, uh, do you, you agree know, with that? Uh, yeah, I mean, we're at that point. Absolutely. And, and, you know, the whole masking debate like vaccinations has has now become political. And so, you know, people are falling down into two different sides. Let me just point out that I personally got COVID and I recovered, as did my boys, first responders. Uh, I elected to get vaccinated because, well, my 94-year-old mother said, you better get vaccinated or you can't come and visit me. But the point is, I did it uh, because I felt that that was the right decision to make. That said and done, uh, I believe that local school districts, guided by their local health departments, can make the mo uh, decisions that are most appropriate. And I think those local decisions require 
require local input because there's enough data out there to draw conclusions. But they are manipulating the data. Let me give you a case in point. Now, you know, the reason I always, if I'm a superintendent, I want to err on the side of being overly cautious is we don't know ultimately where the Delta variant is going to go or what other variant is going to appear. Let's face it. We mm -hmm. don't know what we don't know. So as a superintendent, you want to err on the side of being cautious. But you want to allow parents to have some input. But I want to, are we going on, are we going on break? We are going on a break. All right, you're, I wanna, you're, you're an experienced guest. Uh, give a little tease. You're going to get, you're going to say something very important. So don't go away. You're listening to Beyond <laughs> okay. the Beltway from coast to coast and border to border along with Bruno Barron and Paul Vallis. I'm Bruce Dumont from Elk Grove Village. Nice to have you with us tonight. One in three adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has prediabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. 145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest. And then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org.
Bruce Dumont back. Thanks very much for joining us this evening. Uh, Paul Vallis, you were about to make a point uh, before we went to the break, and we teased everybody to stand by their radio, and uh, here it is. Well, I wanted to make the point that it's it's really important. You know, there is uncertainty as to uh, what the actual outcome is going to be uh, when it comes to the Delta variant or what other variants might, you know, might appear. So it's important to err on the side of caution. But it's also important to be completely honest when it comes to the information. So, for example, Governor Pritzker, when he announced in, in, Illinois. in Illinois that there was going to be masks, everybody was supposed to be masked, uh, he, his health commissioner basically said, we're going to mask because from J- January to July, the, there was a significant increase in the number of young people, the percentage of young people, who, the, the percentage of young people, the new infections, the percentage of young people among the new in, uh, people getting infected was significantly increased. What they didn't tell you, though, was during January and July, the actual n- number of young people getting infected declined by 60%. So why were young? Why did the percentage of young people uh, increase? Well, maybe it was because the children are, are not getting vaccinated. The adults are. So obviously, mm-hmm. there's you know the per, the population that's not vaccinated is going to see a significant increase in the percentage mm-hmm. of new investment in, uh, in new infections. The point is, it's that type of information manipulation that that contributes that contributes to uh, you know that kind of feeds the fire that that creates the perception that somehow you're being manipulated and that's very very dangerous and you, in a can, democracy. And you can't trust government because right. you have too many people with too many different opinions well that and uh, again because the quote-unquote science which I, I think that your audience and everybody in the country would be best served to ignore anybody who says I follow the science because that is now being used by both sides as like a uh, they there's like one study that says I'm right dot you know you find it at I'm right dot com and it it shows you that you're right because it's one study no matter how poorly done or what it means and and Mm -hmm. and both both sides of pro-vaccination anti-vaccination have examples of these kinds of studies um, and nobody ever looks at like the broad science and says what where did what direction does the broad science point so everybody, everybody lies using one or two pieces of right. scientific studies that happen to lean in their favor. And I guess the, the worst part of it now is that we're, we're kind of separating culturally, but with the, what I would say, the extreme left having successfully captured every single major institution. They're, they're, now, I mean, they're now in control of like corporate America. Corporate America is 100% woke and, and, and far left. With, with the cultural institutions being entirely captured, uh, th- there's this idea that anybody who disagrees with the, the Pritzkers of the world uh, must be an anti-science uh, conspiracy nut, whereas anybody who agrees with uh, DeSantis is also anti- a, a, a nut job conspiracy nut, despite the fact that there's all kinds of evidence that but has that, that numerous uh, that all, all kinds of governors have made all kinds of bad mistakes and some governors have made fewer mistakes. But has that extended to the point where it isn't just the differing politics of the individual, it's one side or the other, and they're making the point that because someone is educated, because someone has a degree, because someone has a title, they somehow are suspect because of their knowledge. Do you think we've reached that point 
with some people, and it, it becomes an anti-intellectual, anti-medical degree. Well, it, it shouldn't. It clearly, bias. It, it, well, and, and it this, shouldn't, but well, this is where it. This is where I have no problem criticizing my own peeps, because when I got my vaccination, and I just happened to put it up on Facebook, because I think getting vaccinated is the better solution, and, and I can understand reasons why Probably not. Probably got whacked for it. Oh, the stuff that I got about how everybody who, I mean, I got some sites linked, uh, the, some links that said everybody who's getting the vaccine is dying or massive numbers of people are dying and or overstating what what's happening in the adverse and uh, adverse events database and you know but then at the same time there are some other people some podcasters i listen to who are making very very cogent cases that there's are some issues with the mnra vaccines that we should really be watching out for and that some things were withheld from us uh in like a, a japanese study that talked about how the spike proteins don't stay in the your deltoid muscle but they float all over the place and where they're ending. And all of this was out prior to the vaccines getting their emergency approval, and we didn't hear any about it. So there's a whole thing about informed consent. So I think it's perfectly rational for people on the far left to be uh, skeptical of a, a Republican governor or, or, or Trump saying he understands the science, just as it is perfectly rational for someone to be skeptical. You know, you're talking about degrees. I mean, Fauci, who's really much less of a scientist than a very successful bureaucrat, you know, he, he essentially admitted that he lied about masks to keep PPE from being sucked up by the population. Right. And then he expects us to trust him when he later on comes in and says masks are, are important. It's like, dude, you, that, you lost well, that. Is this, it, does this come back to, and again, I, I think it's bipartisan, Paul, is those who are in, in power at the federal level or even at the, at the local level, they don't trust the people. They don't trust the people, and they don't believe that the people themselves are smart enough to digest a very complex issue and, and explain to them how their life is going to be changed by a decision that's going to be made. For instance, you know, now we're talking about whether there's going to be, uh, you know, whether there's going to be booster shots. Booster shots, not to all, but to some. Well, a couple of months ago, they were, they were floating the idea that there was going to be a booster shot to anyone who already had been vaccinated. And so these things, as, as, as knowledge becomes known, stories change, facts change. And I don't think that the news media, and I'll, I'll blame the news media here now, I don't think they have been doing a good job in explaining to the, to the broad public that, you know what, we're, we're not dealing with an exact science here. Well, it you know, changes, and it's it's going to be different for Paul Vallis than it might be for Bruno or Bruce Dumont. Uh, you know, a case in point on the Pritzker uh, uh, mask mandate in Illinois. No one no one bothered to ask him the question. Uh, well, the infections, the number of infections among young people has actually significantly declined since January. Could it be because young people are not, you know, the kids under twelve, they're not being vaccinated? I mean, it, there's there's that lack of uh, no one's asking those those questions, and I think things have become dramatically polarized. But I will tell you this: uh, there's been no greater manipulation of data, and there's no there's been no greater misinformation than when it comes to children in schools. And I think clearly this virus does pose a significant significant danger for those who have pre-existing conditions and certainly the elderly but what we've done to our schools what we've allowed to happen to our schools has is going to have devastating consequences for generations to come i just want to give you a case in point because i posted something the other day i did a post saying covid is killing the kids not the virus but our response to the virus in chicago 
where schools literally were, campuses were closed for 12 consecutive months, where high school kids only had in-school learning for 12 days the entire school year. There were 100, during COVID, there were 112 kids murdered in the street of, on the streets of Chicago. 22 of those kids were under the ages of 13, and about two dozen of those were killed during the hours when they normally would have been in school. The number of kids who died from COVID in the Chicagoland area, five. They all had serious, life-threatening, pre-existing conditions. So it's that type of manipulation. It's that type of information. I mean, the other day, you know, Pritzker announced his mask ban the day after Lollapalooza ended, where you had basically a half right. a million people in downtown Chicago. Of course, you know, the mayor had a press conference saying, what, 230 people from Lollapalooza had right. spread the, who, whoever. It, and uh, how they figured out that is beyond me. But the point is, meanwhile, White Sox Park was packed the other night, but yet we're now cracking down. And we got the Chicago Teachers Union saying, you know, if the Delta variant of those percentages continue to rise, we may have to go back to remote learning again. So it's, it's that type of manipulation that's being destructive. That's dis- very destructive. Bruno, we have not had you on this program uh, since schools uh, shut down, not only in Chicago, but around the nation. Your reaction, because you have very strong feelings about public education. Well, I've yeah, I've been posting for the longest time that it's not really worth trying to save or reform public schools. I know that right now there's a lot of conservatives who are having some minor success, uh, you know, trying to fight, you know, some of the weirder aspects of critical race theory and, and, and all the other stuff around the country. And there's been uh, a couple of things going on there. But I've always I've always maintained the position that our system doesn't work. Um, the worst part about the system working is the district based where the money follows the district as mm-hmm. opposed to the money following the child. And what we need to do is we have to, we need to have the money following the child to a vast new array of independent education um, resources. And this could be, and, and, and incidentally, had we done something like this back when all of us school choice advocates were talking about it, when I was at the Heartland Institute and traveling around the mm-hmm. country testifying to legislators um, on school choice, had we done something like this from 1990 through uh, when COVID hit, we would have had COVID hitting at a time when there were micro schools, uh, there were homeschool co-ops, there were much smaller charter schools, then all of these would have been independent institutions capable of making their own decision. Has the involvement of parents around the United States to stand up to schools and school districts about mask mandates, and that's going on all over the country now, that type of political movement is that the type of political movement that you think needs to go forward and start demanding more questions from school boards and, and, and teachers around the United States? Uh, the answer to that, it's, it's a t- yes. The short answer is yes. I think that's an important thing to happen. My long-term or my long-winded answer would go into the details of why I think, if, and this is kind of sad, but I think we're... we're the West is in serious trouble. We're, in, we're very, very close to collapse, and I'm skeptical. You mean Western uh, Western Civ, basically, yeah. Things are bad. Okay. <laughs> 1-800-723-8029. Spokane, Washington is standing by. We will hear from them when we roll on from Elk Grove Village. This is Beyond the Beltway from coast to coast and border to border and around the world at beyondthebeltway.com. This is the story of a very special woman. 
In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces, just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, don't tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. One in three adults has pre-diabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has pre-diabetes, with early diagnosis, pre-diabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has pre-diabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Bruce Dumont back. Uh, our guests are fighting over a bottle of water. Guys, we'll get you water at the next break. <laughs> 1-800-723-8029 from coast to coast and border to border. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, I want to mention that in hour number two this evening, uh, we are going to be joined uh, by Dr. Uh, Carter Malzizian, and he is uh, he was the advisor to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Dunford, from 2015 to 2019 in Afghanistan. He's written a book on the history of U.S. involvement in Afghanistan. He's got lots to say, not only what has happened in the past, but what is likely to happen in the future. He will be a guest for us in the entire second hour, so if you have questions or comments, uh, stand by for that. Uh, we have guests in studio right now, and we're going to let them take a moment to introduce themselves and we begin with 
Paul Vallis. I have entered, I've given you the short introduction of the former superintendent of the Chicago Public School System, but give me uh, give me twelve seconds more. Oh my God! Well, just you know, twelve. Longtime superintendent, obviously, of, yeah. of uh, four of the largest. The, the four largest school districts in four different states. Also, uh, I, I ran the recovery school district after New Orleans, which became the nation's first 100% school choice uh, district. And mm-hmm. great success. And I don't think the schools have ever been better. Okay. And we should mention, uh, you ran for mayor of the city of Chicago. I did. You were unsuccessful. You ran for lieutenant governor. And you were unsuccessful with, uh, with Pat, Pat Quinn. Quinn. I was Pat and Quinn. most importantly for those around the country, you were the primary challenger to Rod Blagojevich yes. for governor of Illinois. And the Democrats in the state of Illinois rejected Paul Vallis, the biggest mistake that Democrats in Illinois have made. And they've made many. They've made many. <laughs> but that was one. Bruno Barrett also joined us. Bruno, welcome back to the program. It's been a long time since you've been with us. Thanks but for having me Tell everybody back. a little bit about your background. Uh, well, i uh, uh, probably most uh, people who know me know me that I, that I used to be with the Heartland Institute. Uh, I still do an occasional event with them or anything like that, but I was the director of uh, uh, transforming education, doing a lot of their education work. Um, so I'm, I was just fascinated. I was actually happy to be on with Paul Vallis today, somebody who kind of like knows his stuff. Uh, I've, you know, he's probably forgotten more about education than I know, but it sounds like we're very much on the same wavelength, uh, even if there's a party difference. Or a or, you know party difference from the past. Um, other than that, uh, right now I'm just probably along with being libertarian. I'm also pretty socially conservative and pretty conservative and kind of like uh, uh, all over the map in a lot of things because I, I the ideology of just being able to say I'm the GOP and everything they do or everything red is right and everything blue is wrong and everything and, and having blue people on the other side say the same thing. Um, it's tearing this nation apart, which is one of the reasons I'm so pessimistic. Okay. And we should mention for long-time listeners to this program, you've been a guest on this program numerous times over the last decade. And again, uh, you've not been on in recent months because several months ago you had a very serious accident, and uh, uh, it was uh, well, it was it was uh, very scary. It was vi- it was scary. Share so, uh, with the audience what happened and the, give us the short version. Uh, the short version is wear a helmet when you're biking, and this is regular biking. You should wear a helmet when you're motorcycle riding. This is riding a libertarian too. saying that. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying I'm mandated helmet, but I wasn't wearing a helmet. I was coming into an intersection too fast. I was just having too much fun uh, and um, didn't. Yeah, I, was, I was going to get hit by a car, so I slammed on the bike brakes of the bike, and I went over the handlebars, and the only thing that prevented me from having a traumatic brain injury was the speed that I was going because I actually somersaulted more than I hit. And uh, so I had a nice. I had some nice pictures on Facebook about how uh, you know black and blue my uh, eye socket was, but uh, since then I can scratch having a minor uh, skull fracture off of my bucket list, and I've healed nicely, and I'm doing quite well. When you when this happened, what was going through your mind? D- did you think you were going to die? No, no. I was pretty sure. I mean, I spent. There were two people. Two couples showed up to help me because I was in one of those bike accident things mm-hmm. that you, we've all probably driven by one of those two. And right. I actually spent the first two minutes trying to convince them that I didn't need an ambulance and that oh, I'd wow. be fine if they could just call my wife and get me some, you know, disinfectant and some rags, uh, even though I was bleeding profusely. Then they finally talked me into getting an ambulance. Like I said, it could have been so much worse. Um, the only thing that I can tell you went through my head as I was going over the handlebars is, this is going to hurt. And it did. Wear the helmet. Wear the helmet. Let's go to Dave in Spokane, Washington. He's been standing by for a long time listening to us on KXLY, one of our oldest affiliates. Go ahead, Dave. Are you there, Dave? 
Frankie, we got Dave on the line. Dave has already uh, said goodbye. Uh, so let's go back to Paul because Paul, you said something. Uh, you you are you're somewhat of a quote machine, but you said <laughs> something uh, during the break that caught Bruno's eye uh, or ear and mine as well. Uh, you were talking about the Chicago public school system, and you were talking about racism. And and, and uh, I don't know whether it's specifically the Chicago public school system or all of public education, but make that statement again, if you will. Well, you know, this is this is a time where where you know everyone's looking for structural racism is institutionalized racism in america i'll tell you where there is institutionalized racism it's in union dominated public educational institutions because uh, you know in large urban districts uh your education the quality of your schools is dependent on your your zip code you're limited uh in the in in your ability to uh to attend charters more and more cities are actually restricting the uh, the offering uh, or the availability of traditional of tra- uh, of public education charter schools and then of course when it comes to providing financial support for for poor families to attend parochial and private schools uh, very few states very few states embrace that although I- I'm happy to point out that about 17 states uh, since since uh, uh, the uh, pandemic, have actually enacted legislation to expand uh, support for families who whose children attend private schools. Mm-hmm. So you know, so uh, unless you're in a position of affluency, you're really limited. And in the city of Chicago, a school district where over eighty percent of the kids are black and Latino, and over eighty percent of the kids are uh, are low income. Those kids are literally, the, the fate, their educational fate is determined by their zip code. They have very few choices. And when teacher unions can, can, can pressure school districts across this country, particularly in major cities like New York and like Chicago and L.A., to have literally shut down their systems for a better part of the school year, and, and poor children, particularly poor black and Latino children, do, are not afforded the choices to to uh, secure alternatives to the traditional schools, that's what I call institutional racism. How, how significant, going back to the subject of COVID and, and, the, clo- and the, the closure of classrooms or the, the hybrid classrooms, uh, how significant is the loss of basic education to those that were part of a public school system over the last uh, 24 to 36 months? Well, all the research, if you look at research that, the, uh, that McKinsey has done and others, they've all pointed to the significant learning loss that has occurred during this period. Uh, you know, they're anywhere from 30, 40% of what you would normally have learned uh, during the school year is in fact lost, and it may even be greater. In the Chicago public schools, for example, I mean, the, uh, so many school districts, there are so many states right now that are, in effect, passing laws to, in effect, uh, 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 forego testing over the next two or three years because they don't yeah. want to show you what the significant damage, what significant damage has been done. In Chicago, by contrast, the parochial schools all exceeded their average academic growth because they were open and they stayed open the entire right. year and they gave their children the option of having in-school learning. What does this do, Bruno, in your view, to to incoming colleges? I mean, though, I mean, graduations took place. I mean, students that were in high school are now heading to college. I mean, the gap that they have when they go to that, you know, English well, 101 or whatever the subject is, is there a responsibility for colleges or junior colleges 
to close the gap that was lost by as millions if, of students? As if they can. I mean, the, the problem oh, we but, the problem we see with colleges, and, and uh, you know, I'm I'm one of those people that availed myself of a community college uh, between high school and and my four year institution. So I'm I'm happy that they exist. But the fact of the matter is. 35% of college budgets have already been going, I mean, not every college in every state, but I think there's a very high average that's already been going into remediation even prior to COVID. So it's going to get even worse. I mean, the amount, the amount of remediation that takes place in college already is way too high. So, and this all has to do with the decades of social promotion and, and, and um, you know, all, all kinds of things like that. I want to add, make one more point, kind of dovetailing with what, Paul said, and I've put this on my Facebook page, the most systemically racist institution in America is the school district. And I'm coming at it from the other angle because only in America can the rich people go to Lake Forest and go to Highland Park and go and move to their generally unaffordable homes and then uh, pull their kids in behind district walls. And it's not that they're not that the people who are doing this are racist per se. Um, but I think even a, a, a even the most dyed in the world wool lefty would have to agree that it, if there's any such thing as disparate impact, this is the disparate impact. Because all those rich kids, well, they're going to get a little bit more learning center. They're going to get a little bit more homeschooling from parents. They're going to get a little bit more time on task with uh, uh, you know possibly a faster and better tech system for online learning. So uh, having the money follow the district is just it's just awful for America. Awful. Yeah. Look, I agree. I agree 100 uh, percent. Look, the, the, the United States Constitution uh, guarantees uh, an, an individual the right to a free public education, not a government education. So at the end of the day, it doesn't matter whether you go to whether the state is supporting a child who's going to parochial or private schools or charter school, traditional uh, public charter schools or or, or traditional schools, the bottom line is that guarantee, but that guarantee is, is being denied. That guarantee is being denied to, uh, to low-income families. And in, this, in the big cities like Chicago, New York, and others, those families are overwhelmingly black and Latino. So when the Democratic Party talks about the, the agenda, this progressive agenda, no. I mean, the, 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 uh, the acquiescence to the, to the demands of the teachers' unions are institutionalizing racism in this country. Okay, we've got to pause. 1-800-723-8029. I understand Dave is up back on the line. We'll hear from him. And again, in the next hour, we're going to be talking about Afghanistan. Don't go away. song again for the hundredth time today here's that song again it's gonna be stuck in your head all day here's that song again it will make you cray cray you love your kids enough to watch that tv show a bajillion times love them enough to make sure they're in the right car seat for their age and size show them you love them keep them safe visit nhtsa.gov slash the right seat brought to you by the national highway traffic safety administration and the ad council at social security we are always thinking of ways to save you time and make things easier that's why we created my social security a my social security account allows you to access your earnings history and benefits information request a replacement social security card get a proof of income letter estimate and apply for benefits and more save time go online open a my social security account at ssa.gov slash my account social security securing today and tomorrow produced at u.s taxpayer expense 
145 over 92. 180 over 111. 182 over 100. And I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest and then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself, I didn't, now I do, uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it, or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. It's a bully, but we aren't afraid of a fight. It's elusive, but our focus never fades. It's deadly, but we were born to defeat cancer. You may not have heard of us, but our work has helped millions impacted by cancer. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. We are leaders in advancing breakthroughs in immunotherapy, genomics, and personalized medicine. This research saves lives. After 65 years of fighting blood cancers, we've arrived at a game-changing belief. The cures for cancer are in our blood. The drugs and treatments we've developed for blood cancers have helped people affected by many different types of cancers. We are the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Beating cancer is in our blood. Learn more at LLS.org. Bruce Dumont back, and we continue. We have one more segment in this hour, and then we have another full hour after the uh, news break at the top of the hour. Uh, Paul, uh, for those uh, around the country, uh, you have been uh, very active also in recent months in working on the police contract for the uh, Fraternal Order of Police, the police officers in Chicago. And again, uh, for those around the country, uh, this past week has been a very difficult week for people in Chicago because one of the many Chicago police officers, uh, she was involved in a traffic stop, and this is Officer French, and she was uh, shot... uh, Cold blank, cold, right, right, without any question, as was her partner. Her partner is still hanging on to life, but again, uh, it, it, I think it's grabbed people more than any other police shooting, certainly in the last couple of years that I can remember. And Paul, you, you spend a lot of time with police officers. How, how demoralized are they by incidents like this and the reaction of political leaders when these things happen? Well, they're very demoralized, just not here in Chicago, but everywhere. And as you know, my, my wife was a police officer and my sons were police officers. My one son's now a firefighter. My, my youngest son is a police officer. He's mm-hmm. in San Antonio where they, they're a little more supportive of their police out there. But, uh, but uh, I mean, it's been open season on police officers, and you see it directly in the number of sh- – a police shooting. So police, this year, I think the number, well, last year, there were four times the number of people sh- uh, the police shot at than had been shot at the previous year. And the numbers are even greater this year. And of course, 
you know, the tragic shooting of two officers, one of whom died and the other one who's in serious condition. Right. It, it's like open season on police officers. Yeah. And, and, and so they never, they never had their weapons out of the holster. This well, was the traffic stop. Well, well, you know, it, it's amazing. My son, like in San Antonio, new rules came down. If they draw their weapon just as a safety precaution, they, they have to write it up. They, they basically have to write up that I took my weapon out of my holster. You know, uh, they just passed legislation, uh, as you know, uh, uh, earlier this year that basically uh, transforms uh, uh, what I would call proactive policing into, uh, you know, into uh, a criminal activity, so to speak. Imposing, imposing all sorts of restrictions on police activities on what they can do and what they can't do. You're Rules and regulations, guidance. Yeah. yeah, even now, you know, the, the mayor's office uh, laying down a series of directives that restrict a police officer's ability to chase someone, to pursue someone, even if that person has a weapon. And, 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 and you know, and it doesn't so much say you can't pursue them. But it hits you with so many regulations, rules and regulations, that the violation of any of those like five or six or seven or a dozen regulations can result in your being terminated. So at the end of the day, you know, it, it, there's almost been there's almost been this there's been this effort to almost criminalize proactive policing, certainly to significantly restrict uh, uh, proactive policing. So when you have these type of things going on, when you have com felons being released being released, right. uh, you know, just in, in record numbers. Um, or on know, ankle bracelets. Or, or on ankle bracelets. And when you have police working 12-hour days for sometimes one week, two weeks on end with their days off being canceled and their vacations being canceled, you're not only punishing and demoralizing these officers, but you're also, you're also imposing significant hardships on their families, which causes even greater stress. Bruno, your reaction? Uh, this is a, a little bit earlier I said that I didn't have much hope for Western civilization and everybody should do what they can, but that we're, we're in dire straits. And I think this is one of those simple examples that, that points out why. Uh, we, we have in the past two years in this country gone insane. And, you know, there are some lefties who could make the case that uh, electing Trump was an example of the, the right going insane. Um, I would think that's a little bit strong, but I, I was no Trump fan, and I could understand somebody saying that. But whatever the reason is, what Paul just laid out, they're literally making the enforcement of law illegal. And when you make the enforcement of law illegal, you are essentially decriminalizing crime. And, you know, so are they still pursuing murders? Maybe. It seems like they are. They're supposed to be. But I, I just got back from but a vacation pu in Portland. Yeah. It's nuts over there. They, they're, they're not enforcing anything. But the public seems to be outraged, at least in Chicago. I mean, every time, literally every night where there's a shooting uh, which leads the news in Chicago, there are people out there in that neighborhood that seem to be very riled up, not only at the mayor, they seem to be riled up at the state's attorney, rightfully so, mm -hmm. or judges, because they have been too lenient. I mean, well, we'll have to see what happens we're, we're at the ballot box. With the that, that's right, because but, there was certainly a case to be made in Chicago with the with the state's attorney, and uh, you know the guy that ran against her, you know, could barely uh, you know uh, raise a dime. Well, you know, you, you really have the emergence of a criminal industrial complex because 
there are so many people in 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 the communities who are in some phase of the criminal justice system. I mean, there are you'll talk to some of the aldermen. Fifty, sixty percent of the men in their communities are in some phase of the criminal justice system. And at the end of the day, and, and, and yet there's no programs for 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 reeducation, for occupational training, for rehabilitation, and things like that. They've they've closed all the mental health centers. You know, they have no. Uh, opioid addiction centers, you know, they have no job training and play. I mean, I mean, look, you know, they they institutionalized cannabis in the state of Illinois and and 80, 92 percent of the money is going to the state where if they took half that 400 million dollars in tax money and they gave it to the local communities so that they could create adult ed and occupational training programs and opioid addiction programs and reopen these mental health centers. So you could create an infrastructure within those communities. So it's just not it's just not hard pressed. Uh, uh, disengaged, uh, disenfranchised people well, intera- it, in, interacting with the cops. Why isn't there? You, you why might be able to make some progress. Why isn't there? I mean, we have a democratic legislature in 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 this state. Why why are they not more uh, aggressive in in dealing with these issues with a democratic mayor in Chicago? Well, you I mean, know, Democrats all around. You you know, look. You know, the problem in 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 the state of Illinois is there is no. There, there's no second party. In Chicago, the Chicago Teachers Union is the second party. I mean, they are literally party in their own right. And, and they, they become right. t- totally political. I mean, they're trying to tell the mayor how to spend her COVID money, not just the education money. Yeah. And, and let me point out that, that the, the map, the, the gerrymandered maps, literally guarantee Democratic majorities in both the, the mm-hmm. House and Senate. So there is no competition. There's no dissent. We've got a break on that point for this discussion. However, I hope you do not go away because in the next hour we have a very special guest. He was the advisor to the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, for five years in Afghanistan. He will join us. He's written a book, The History of U.S. Involvement in Afghanistan. Uh, He's got lots to say, and hopefully you've got your ears wide open in hour number two. I'm Bruce Dumont. Back shortly. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, We'll probably stay together. Probably? (laughs) It's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, You should wait 30 minutes. Mm, Okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? 
Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. One in three adults has pre-diabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, your cat jogger. While one in three adults has pre-diabetes, with early diagnosis, pre-diabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has pre-diabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. Bruce Dumont back, and uh, if a third time is a charm, <laughs> Dr. Carter Malthusian uh, is with us. Doctor, are you there? I'm here. Do you hear me all right? Yes, we hear you. We may not see you, but we hear you, and it's your words that... Uh, are, are very important to our audience this evening. We thank you very much. As I mentioned, uh, you were a senior advisor to uh, the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Joseph uh, Danford Dunford, uh, from 2015 to 2019. Uh, you're a graduate of Oxford, and uh, uh, you were with the State Department for many, many years, and you've written the basically the history of U.S. involvement in Afghanistan. I will ask the question for the third time. Uh, tell us what you think should be happening in Afghanistan regarding the United States in the next, let's say, two weeks? In the next two weeks, the first thing that comes up is the responsible, the completion, the responsible um, removal of the civilians and such that need to leave the country. Um, we need to make sure that there's that no harm comes to them and that force protection is good. Um, it's a little unclear as to what the administration's intentions are next. If they intend on keeping um, a small embassy presence at the uh, at the airport itself, because mm -hmm. our embassy is now our embassy presence is is it's been announced as being moved right. from the uh, from the embassy itself to the airport. So if they if they keep if they keep that, um, what we should then be looking to doing is completing the processing of the people who have worked with us on, and so that they can come come to the United States. Part of that would be, of course, negotiating with the Taliban to make sure that they. Uh, will allow uh, the folks that have worked with us in the past to to come into the airport, and you know, frankly, that's a that's an unknown. Mm -hmm. It's really unknown what the Taliban are going to let us do or, or not let us do. I mentioned it in the like I, I, I mentioned in the last hour in describing the circumstance. There is, and again, uh, there is at least my numbers. Hopefully, are correct. There's there's eighty thousand uh, former helpers and their families. Uh, 18,000 of which are interpreters. And and they are now sprinkled all over the country, which is where they were doing their work for the United States. And then, you know, they obviously have maybe other jobs as well. So the, the, the challenge to them is to get from a province that's 300 miles uh, from Kabul and get to Kabul. 
and that you have this going on in in seventy five eighty thousand with different people is 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 that a fair assessment of what you think is going on insofar as these people have they almost have to sneak out of their own homes to get to safety to get back to the United States or some friendly nation? Yeah, I mean, speaking honestly, it's probably a little bit worse than that. Mm-hmm. Oh wow! On um, they, they, I mean, they, they need to get through those places to Kabul, and it's unlikely that the the, the Taliban would be too interested in letting them do that. And then, you know, once they're at Kabul, there has to be some kind of process or agreement in place with the Taliban that they're going to let people onto the airport to go and get flights to the United States or Qatar or Kuwait right. or wherever the staging grounds are going to be. Um, and I think it's I think it's possible, but that depends on some hard negotiation. It depends on us willing to to put our foot down that we want that to happen. It depends on us keeping those forces in place um, to allow that to happen. So I think when it comes down to it, it's that we have some hard strategic choices to make. And um, we also have no. I mean, there's no. There is no ID card that they're carrying. We don't. We don't know. Somebody could be showing up at the airport and said, you know, I, I helped the U.S. for 15 years. And it would be pretty difficult, un- unless there was a, a person uh, with a U.S. uniform on that happened to work with that person. I mean, they could be blowing smoke about what they did or didn't do. Yeah. Um, so that's absolutely a, a possibility. There's a few things they can do to mitigate that. I mean, the mm-hmm. people that are going to be coming on flights, they should have had to have had submitted some kind of paperwork already. Okay. Um, and so there should be some kind of law that they've submitted the paperwork, and then that should match their ID card, which is called a Tascura. Um, now, that's not perfect, because a Tascura may or may not have the right photograph on it, may be forged, people often have the same names, people often don't have last names in Afghanistan. Um, so these are all complications that would make it very difficult, but yeah, that, that gets to the point that actually removing all of the people out is, would be a, a very difficult task. One last question, and my other guests in studio want to question you. Um, the president has sent in 5,000 additional troops. Uh, if if a goal became, if a short-term goal began, uh, became that we're going to preserve and secure the Kabul airport so that we can, we can deal with these 80,000 friends of the United States that have to be processed, would that be doable? I mean, if you're surrounded by the Taliban, would there be enough forces, U.S. forces, that really could secure the airport? I don't want to overstep too much as, as a civilian and not a military officer, yeah. um, but my rough intuition is that, yes, it would be doable, partly because we could bring tremendous firepower to bear. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yes, it does take responsible, careful leadership, because otherwise, a, you know, Taliban can see, seep through, there are people could exploit things. Sure. But I think it is possible. The other thing that gives a little bit of confidence, but we don't want to let it give us too much confidence, is that since the signing of the February agreement in 2020 between us and the Taliban, um, the Taliban have adhered pretty well to not attacking U.S. forces. Um, so it, it's possible that, the, that that agreement still is still in place. Paul Vallis, uh, former superintendent yeah. of public school systems, got a question yeah, for you. Yeah, and, and former history, old history teacher. Look, the government's already collapsed. The Taliban's in Kabul. I mean, the airport may be the only sanctuary. They're already moving the embassy. The, the window has rapidly closed on, the, uh, on really getting all the people out that they need to get out. Yes, the Taliban have adhered to their agreement uh, not to fire on American troops, although they did before Trump left and Trump pounded them. 
And look, I'm mm-hmm. not, mm-hmm. you know, yes, and, yeah. and, and I mean, so yeah. there was always that unpredictability with Trump, particularly after taking out Soleimani and sending the signal to the Iran. So, but the bottom line is uh, the Taliban already announced that there's going to be no transitional government. So they're simply going to dictate to us, you know. So, so unless there, there's like a show of muscle or a show of force, yeah, we may get um, the Americans out and we may get some people out, but the vast majority of these translators are going to be left behind and the Taliban will retaliate against them because they said they would. And, and uh, we'll be lucky if we get a fraction of the 80,000 who have worked with us. And by, by the Taliban definition, they've collaborated with us. So it's okay. a, an American tragedy. Dr. Malkazian, do you agree with that assessment? Everything he says is a distinct possibility here. I've had Afghans calling me and people I know, people I've worked with uh, for years, calling and talking to me over the past two weeks about what could happen in a city's fall as uh, and Taliban start conducting operations looking for people who have worked with us or looking for people who have fought hard alongside the government. Um, so this is this is a, a real problem. It's heartbreaking. It's, it's tremendously um, it's tremendously um, shuddering. And yeah, we don't know the Taliban are likely to punish them. We don't know to what degree they're going to punish them. Is it possible they could execute some of these people? Yeah, it is. Um, is it certain? I don't. I don't know for sure if that's going to happen or not. I don't know, and I don't know how the Taliban, how much the Taliban cares about how they'll be viewed by the world. Um, these are all questions that are there. Um, so when I when I mentioned a moment ago that we have some hard decisions to make, it, it's kind of what you guys are just pointing at. Um, that we have a hard decision about how long are we going to sit there and apply the pressure if we wanted to get these interpreters out. Because just like just as you just described, making that happen would be pretty difficult. We would also need countries that want to accept them. At the moment, is it true that only Qatar is accepting of them uh, into their country for processing? You know, I'm honestly not sure. I, when they gave us the report that Kuwait was also on the list, okay. and but that, that information is two weeks old, so it is possible that I'm missing some information that maybe Kuwait has mm-hmm. said no to that. But it was Qatar in, in Kuwait initially. Right. Um, but there's... And, and, you know, Canada is accepting um, a large mm-hmm. number as well, mm-hmm. um, se- several thousand. But I think other countries will accept people who are going to but come. But we, 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 we don't have anyone in the United States, so given the way that, that we're dealing with immigration as a broader issue uh, in the United States, there, there's the governor of Montana is not saying we've got, you know, 80,000 uh, square feet out here. Let's bring them here. No, there's no governor that's saying send us some of your Afghan refugees, right? Not I mean, this, I becomes know, a I dom- this becomes a domestic political issue because, you know, this is one of these things where, you know, yeah, we want to help out, but not in my backyard. I don't, I don't want, you know, I don't want 30,000 Afghans in my neighborhood. Well, look, I mean, look, um, there's plenty, look, we're not in this alone. One of the reasons that Biden's getting a lot of criticism from some of the other Western leaders is because, there was no plan. There are other countries that have been part of the alliance there that might have been willing to take people. There are also countries that are heavily dependent on us for their security in the Middle East, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, others, Qatar, etc. I mean, the bottom line is they, they dropped the ball. They completely do dropped you, the ball. Doctor, do you, do you agree that, do you agree again with Paul, that uh, there was no plan or there is no plan? Do you go that far? 
I wouldn't say that there was no plan at all. They've been worried about interpreters for quite some time. For several years, they've been steadily increasing the numbers that they'll accept in the United States. Senator McCain was very much uh, pressing for this for years and, and enabled a lot of it to happen. Um, and then once the announcement was made, they did work to, to move things forward. Um, so I, I wouldn't go so far to say there isn't a plan. Uh, and it, things have definitely moved faster than, the, than, than our ability to execute. Um, Bruno Barron has a question for you, Doctor. Go ahead. And Doctor, so I, I guess, um, and I'm far less knowledgeable about the interpreter issue than Paul Vallis than you are. Um, what I was looking at is um, the the reason we went into Afghanistan in the first place was we have to we can't have this giant petri dish for Osama bin Laden and other terrorist groups uh, to do state sponsored. Uh, Terrorism. The Taliban is barely a state, but they're certainly more of a state than anything else in uh, Afghanistan has been without our support. Um, so, how do we how do we prevent that petri dish from happening again? And what are what are some options we have if it starts happening? That's the question. We do have to pause, Doctor, for some commercials. When we come back, we'll get your full answer uninterrupted. I'm Bruce Dumont. Thanks for joining us tonight. Yeah, yeah, Bruce. Let's be honest. The National Symphony may not be in his future, but he wanted to try violin. So you said yes because you love him. And if you love him that much, love him enough to make sure he's buckled up and in the back seat. Find out more about keeping your kids safe in your vehicle at nhtsa.gov slash the right seat. Show them you love them. Keep them safe. Visit nhtsa.gov slash the right seat. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. What if the music stopped? If the familiar voices were silenced? If there were no breaking news updates? What if your companion and connection to your community came with a monthly fee? Don't worry. We're free local radio with you wherever you go. Celebrating 100 years and looking forward to the next 100. We are broadcasters. Text radio to 52886 and let Congress know you depend on your local TV and radio stations. This message furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces. Just by giving her a bear hug, she masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. One in three adults has prediabetes. One in three. That means it could be you, your football buddy, your football buddy, or you, your best man, your worst man, you, your dog walker, 
your cat jogger. While one in three adults has prediabetes, with early diagnosis, prediabetes can be reversed. Take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. That's doihaveprediabetes.org. Wait, did they just say one in three adults has prediabetes? That's 33.33333% of adults. That means it could be me, my boss, or my boss's boss, or me, my favorite sister, or my other sister. That's seven members of my 21-person romantic book club. <gasps> Wait, the one in three could be me, my karaoke partner Carol, or ugh, my karaoke enemy Jeff. I'm going to take the risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners. First one back on Beyond the Beltway. Our guest uh, on the phone is Dr. Carter Malkesian, and he is special assistant, or was special assistant for strategy, to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Joseph Dunford. From 2015 to 2019, uh, he's written numerous books on conflict zones, including Afghanistan and Iraq. And his newest book is The American War in Afghanistan. That's a history. And again, uh, that is available if you want to know the whole history about where it all started. And it goes back a long, long way. But right at the moment, we want to know how far it's going to go in the future. So I've, I've got a couple more questions about how the Taliban survives. Uh, Paul Vallis was saying that, that China wants to be friends with them, uh, and obviously there are other nations that will want to be friendly with them as well. But, but right now, who are the most supportive entities or countries to uh, the Taliban at the moment, Doctor? So Pakistan has been the most supportive and, and, and entity for the Taliban. Now, that's not to say they're controlled by, Tal- by, by Pakistan. They aren't. They're, they're independent. Um, but Pakistani security forces and certain presidents have admitted that they've allowed Taliban to to, reside, to remain there, that they've at times given some level of support. Mm-hmm. We're still not actually sure about what the actual full level of support is. But I think it's pretty fair to say that the Taliban would have a great deal of, would have had a great deal of trouble existing mm-hmm. under our pressure if they weren't able to go to safe haven in Pakistan. Um, other countries that have been been giving some amount of support. Iran has given some amount of monetary and probably military support over the past few years, but at a very reduced, very, very, very small level. Iran's a country that traditionally has uh, relations with other elements of Af- in Afghanistan, other ethnic groups like the Hazars, who are Shia. Um, and in the past, uh, Iran almost went to war with the Taliban in the 1990s. So it's unclear now how much they're really going to have friendship with them. They were kind of funding the Taliban on to be a thorn in our side and that appears to be the same thing russia has done whatever support russia has given is probably less than iran or pakistan but you remember all the information about the bounty mm-hmm. uh, right. that, that had come out um, some months ago now what russia is going to do now are they going to maintain uh, are they going to recognize the taliban or are they going to treat them differently um hard to say but russia also like iran has relations with a lot of different groups in Afghanistan, and they have a lot of interests there. And how much they they are in favor of the Taliban um, doing whatever the Taliban please, or the Taliban causing problems uh, on the international scene, um, that that remains to be observed. Doctor, when when people hear the term the Taliban, okay, it's not a country. What exactly is it? The Taliban is a movement. Uh, I think that's the best way to describe them. And it's a movement that started in, in the 90s, 
and it was built upon religious leaders, often from the villages, and often uh, students that were going to religious schools called madrasas. And the Taliban was able to mobilize and recruit um, lots of students and lots of other Afghans to get their movement going. It first started in Kandahar, and they were eventually able to take Kabul. And at that point, they became the, the, the Taliban emirate, or as they call themselves, the Islamic emirate of Afghanistan. So if you ask the Taliban what they are, they would not say they were a movement. They would say that they are the government of Afghanistan, that they were pushed out by the United States, and that they've always been the government, and now that they're now, and I expect them to say soon, you know, we're back. Um, we're the emirate of Afghanistan. That's what we are. And who and um, who 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 funded them again? Clarify who funded them in the past, and and how do they operate within? What is the what is the economic and the environmental aspect of Afghanistan as a country uh, that those uh, uh, natural resources? Uh, how are they used, and, and does Taliban control all of them? Well, at this point, they pretty much do control all of them. Okay. Um, and the Taliban got money. I mentioned some of the other countries they get money from, but that's probably not the majority of their funding. Um, they're going to get money um, from some small amount of money also from international donors, um, and then also they'll be getting money through taxing um, taxing things going on the roads or taxing things through the customs posts. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be another source of money. When we were in Afghanistan, they would also spend some amount of time taxing our projects um, and conducting other taxes on the economic activity that was going on to raise money. How but by Im- far, uh, how the, the important? That they made, okay. I'm sorry. I wanted, the thing uh, that how how most, important? Sorry. How important are the poppy fields to the future of the Taliban? and the future of their ability to prosper. So Poppy is by I think is the, where they get the majority of their funding from. Um, they they tax the poppy at various points and they help smuggle the poppy. They don't produce heroin in Afghanistan or at least the amount that they produce is very small. Like it's produced elsewhere. Uh, but Poppy is by far the most lucrative thing they do and it's important beyond just the money that they are getting from it. They get supporters. They get local people to support them because a poor farmer can grow poppy and can have a livelihood. And why didn't why than, in in retrospect why didn't the United States destroy the poppy fields? Goes back right back to those local farmers uh, that there was a sense that if you destroyed all those poppy fields, you would upset all of the local farmers and create more more issues and problems than it would be worth. Paul Vallis, we have less than a minute left. Uh, yeah, one question. Um, one of the reasons that w- it was so easy for us to topple the Taliban uh, after uh, after 9-11 was the fact that the Taliban rule had been so, so uh, injurious, so, you know, so, you know, uh, punishing that there was a lot of discontent within the country, particularly among many of the tribes and things like that. Do you see history repeating itself? Not us going back in, but are they going to be able to subjugate that country? 30 seconds. Go ahead, doctor. I think in the near term, they'll be able to establish a good amount of order, but in the long term, you've got a great point. It's hard to see a Taliban regime surviving for, say, 20 years. It's just uh, they're going to have a lot of problems. It's Afghanistan. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Carter Malthesian has been joining, Malkazian has been joining us this evening, The American War in Afghanistan and History. Thank you very much for being with us. I'm sorry we had all of our technical issues, but again, I think you've got a lot of, uh, lot of significant points out. And again, we thank you for sharing your, your knowledge and your history and your experience in Afghanistan with our audience this evening, okay? 
Thanks very Thank much. Thank you so much for hosting me. Also, thanks to uh, the ever-popular Bruno Barron. For, nice to see you back with us again. Paul Vallis, always nice to Thank have you, you uh, share your witticisms and your intellect and your wit with us and also your many areas of expertise. I'm Bruce Dumont. Thanks very much. Uh, Frankie Rodriguez helped make this program possible. Until next week, this is Bruce Dumont. Good night from Elk Grove Village, Illinois. One forty-five over ninety-two. One eighty over one eleven. One hundred and eighty-two over a hundred, and I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest, and then a stroke. Your blood pressure numbers could change your life. A lot of people don't understand, including myself. I didn't. Now I do. Uh, the impact of having a stroke. My memory is shot. When I woke up, I couldn't speak. Lowering your high blood pressure could save you from a heart attack or stroke. If you've stopped your treatment plan, restart it. Or talk to your doctor about creating one that works better for you. Start taking the right steps at manageyourbp.org. It's a new life, but I'm going to make it better. I'm coming back. Ask your doctor. Check your blood pressure. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. This is the story of a very special woman. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician or an entrepreneur. Her knowledge was limitless and still is. She could also make monsters disappear, especially those that lurked in the shadows under the bed. Once, this woman put back together a teenage girl's broken heart, which had been shattered in a thousand pieces, just by giving her a bear hug. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources, at aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? It's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council.